Hello and welcome to The Spectator Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by Sir Ian Kershaw, one of our most distinguished historians, who just, I think today, publishes his new book, which is the second volume of his History of Europe. The first one was to Helen Back, and this one is called Roller Coaster, Europe 1950 to 2017. Welcome in. Thank you. I suppose I'll ask you about the governing metaphor to start with. Um, why roller coaster? It's not a perfect metaphor, and I say this right at the outset in the preface, because roller coaster obviously reminds people of of um, good times on the fun fair. Yet this is a serious book about a serious topic, and it's also a roller coaster, as I say. There goes around in a circle, basically back to where it started from. Whereas this, um, obviously, the story is unending. Uh, but at the same time, roller coaster has some benefits in that it suggests um, a half century or more of twists and turns and unpredictabilities. And I think implicitly, uh, there's been a tendency to see the second half of the 20th century, certainly down to the finance crash of 2008 and after, as essentially an upward trajectory to peace, prosperity, and progress. And I wanted to counter that by showing there were sharp ups and downs and twists and turns at various points in the in the story and I think Roller Coaster captures that at any rate. Yes, yes certainly ups and downs. Um, now you do as you say you know sort of up to 2008 I mean you talk about um, early in the book you talk about how Tony Judd writing you know before all that in his great book Post War which has been an influence on this you know he drew a more optimistic yes, conclusion. yes. And at various times, you know, I mean, where Francis Fukuyama, of course, famously had the same sort of sunny, sunny outlook. Um, does it very much depend when you're when you're writing? I mean, how I, I think it certainly does um, depend on that. If, if I'd been writing this book around 2000, I would have been one of those people, along with others, not just Tony Jott, who gave, who would have given a, a quite optimistic view about about the future, about the future of Europe and everything seems to be going swimmingly and there's economic prosperity and basically we've never had it so good, quote. But, um, but it, things changed very dramatically in 2008 and um, uh, writing now you have to take cognizance of the the crisis of of Europe and it's a sort of fairly existential crisis, uh, I think, at the present time. And it started in two thousand eight. It's not over yet because on top of the finance crisis came the migration crisis, and that's really uh, given a massive boost to the populism, which is threatening to undermine lots of things in Europe at the current time. So um, I think uh, it's very understandable that Tony Jutt, I was a great admirer, or I'm a great admirer of Tony Jutt's work, and um, it, it was very understandable that he and other people had a very optimistic view about the, the future in 2000 or just after the millennium. Did you um, at any point think, I shouldn't go right up to the present? I mean, was there a temptation to sort of cut off in 2008 or cut off in 1989 or... I mean, how, how secure are you in your periodization? I'm glad I did it, but um, it would have been much easier to stop earlier. The obvious conventional point to stop would have been 1990. Uh, for a time, I toyed with the idea of stopping in 2001 because I thought that the events 3,000 miles away in New York, 9-11, did mark a turning point for Europe too. Uh, and then I remember at the time of the 2008 crash, uh, we had a little family get-together and it was just that the, the the day that the it looks as the banks might crash in this country completely. And um, 
and I remember saying to my elder son, David, however this pans out now, this Europe will never be the same again. And I thought of ending then. And then I thought, well, you can't end in 2008 without seeing the consequence of 2008. And therefore, I decided that I really did want to carry on and see how the story unfolded and how this crisis or this, this combination of crises, because it wasn't just one, but a combination of crises then uh, worked their way through. And uh, even a decade later, we don't know the end of that particular story. Also, you know, I've looked at the period, but the reach of a book about Europe, I mean, do you think there is a, something, obviously, for a great part of this period, mm. you know, Europe was sort of divided in two. Um, do you think there is a sort of meaningful description one can make of what Europe is as um, a consistent entity? and how It's a good question. It? I don't think you can, really. Uh, which is one of the reasons why I struggled for a title for this book and one of the reasons why Roller Coaster, with its ups and downs and twists and turns and the rest of it, um, appealed to me at the end because it is still... Um, it, it's it's not a, a description of a completed story but rather a description of the journey through that story. And um, and I think that's about right. I, I, I think now in the, in the state of... of um, major crisis in, in Europe, there isn't a completion of this particular part of it, yet we're now uh, best part of 30 years on since the, um, since the end of the Cold War. It would seem a bit odd in a modern history of modern Europe to end it 30 years ago. Uh, it was an ending of sorts, but a beginning of, of, of new sorts. And um, we, uh, so I think, although there isn't a clear delineation of the history of Europe in the way that there was for to Helenbeck, where it was basically into war, out of war, into war, out of war. Here, I think the the description of the the story, it's the, the course of the story, rather than uh, a, a summarising a completed entity, is the way to go. One of the things that's quite striking in the early part of the book, you say, I mean, I'm paraphrasing you slightly crudely, but that actually the erection of the Berlin Wall might have in some ways been a good thing. It was a terrible thing for the people incarcerated behind it. But I think if you looked at it in simply in terms of political objectivity, then what it did was to defuse the crisis, which was, we tend to forget now, a very dangerous crisis for Europe, uh, not just for Germany at the time. And um, it was one reason why the West was not so loud in its protests at the Berlin Wall that uh, the Western leaders were all on holiday or away somewhere or other at the time that it was put up. They protested, but that was about it. And um, they didn't want to risk a, a world war over that. And as soon as the war was put up, that crisis did dissipate, really, because uh, as long as you had that, that opening between East and West Berlin... Uh, there was a passage, of course, of people f to the West, which was undermining completely the East German system. And since that was uh, a cornerstone of the the communist, uh, the Soviet bloc, it was dangerous for the Soviet bloc too. So that, in the late 50s, had been a, a really dangerous area, and uh, the Berlin crisis had built up there. As soon as the war was put up, the crisis went away. So objectively, what you can say is that that did defuse the critical point of the Cold War in Europe. Although, as I started off by saying, for the people behind that Berlin Wall, it was cold comfort, and I don't want to minimise the 
misery that many of those people had to suffer for long periods of time uh, as a consequence of that. But I think looking at it purely in terms of geopolitics, it was advantageous. Of course. You've got a very strong... I mean, actually, the Berlin crisis is a good example where um, it was, if I remember rightly, a diplomat wanted to go to the opera, refusing to show his papers. Yeah. You, know, you ended up with sort of tanks facing off across the border. There's a very strong emphasis on contingency, on tiny little hinges in this book. Um, I mean, that's another example which had completely escaped me, but um, that the Korean War would not have been possible had um, Russia not been going through a strop and s- <laughs> <laughs> refusing to sit on the Security Council yeah. so they couldn't veto the yeah. involvement of America. I mean, could that tiny little strop have completely changed the history of the Cold War? Um, well, I think one of the difficulties for historians writing about any period of history, and not least writing about a complex period over a, over a, a big area, is actually trying to deal with what looked like structural determinants and what looked like uh, contingencies. And I think you, anybody has to accept that contingency really does play a part in this. And um, it, you, there are moments where things changed dramatically and where they were unexpected. And that's, that is something that I wanted to build into the the description and coming back to your roller coaster, then it, it, it's sort of the, the swerves and the the ups and downs and have to do with some of those things. And throughout, um, I mean, 9-11 is another one. 9-11, you're out of a clear blue sky quite literally, but it changes the history of Europe as well as the history of the USA. Uh, or the you know, the oil crisis of the 19, of 1973 and 79 came from outside Europe, but change it. Um, bits and pieces of the sort you mentioned, you know, like the, the Korean War and so on. So in the end, you'd say, well, um, it maybe doesn't change the overall course of history. If you look at, let's say, the fall of Berlin Wall, and you say, well, I say in the book there that this has to do with Gorbachev, and without Gorbachev, that system could have staggered on. Almost certainly there would have been some collapse at some point, but history would have been different without Gorbachev. So that's another element of contingency in a way. So I think the any historian has to accept that contingency is a real part of it, but accidents, there's another word for contingency, but accidents have causes and you can understand why that contingency arises in the first place. Yes, I mean, Gorbachev's a good example, actually, because, I mean, so-called you know, great man history is kind of out of fashion, but you're making... A case there that actually Gorbachev's personality. Well, you know, some uh, some while ago, I, I wrote a biography of Hitler, and um, it, that's hardly the great man theory of, of of history, but it is an individual who played personally a, a, a very important and a singular role that nobody else could have played in the same way. And I think history is littered with cases like that. And uh, if, if you look across this book, you know, are there instances, Gorbachev won, Helmut Kohl also in Germany intervened personally to direct things against the advice of those people around him. In our own country, Mrs Thatcher was another one who personally made a big impact on things. wouldn't have been the same without that individual. And therefore, we have to build in the individual into the story. And that's that element of complexity of individual against structural elements, contingency, individual, structural elements. That's a, a very tricky thing to describe in the abstract how these things play out. But when you look at specific cases, you can see it in play. And uh, I, I'm not just myself uh, suggesting that about Gorbachev, but all the leading experts on the Soviet Union on Russia uh, would agree on that, I think, that the, the system 
was in a bad way, but it could have carried on for a while. And the why it didn't was actually largely owing to Gorbachev. And, of course, the weaknesses you see throughout the, the Soviet bloc, as it was at the time. But without Gorbachev and his, his opening there, his, his opening, opening of Pandora's box, in a way, would these people have been emboldened to act as they did in East Germany and the other countries then, which then tipped the system over the edge? I would say no. So it is the case that in this instance, an individual then played a very crucial, maybe the decisive role overall in unleashing it. doesn't as I say it wouldn't have happened without him at some point, but uh, at that point he determined the shape of history. When you were researching this book, I mean, what was the one thing that sort of, if you like, surprised you most? I mean, did you come upon something you thought was a received wisdom that actually, you know, you, you, it wasn't like that? I think what surprised me most um, was my total ignorance about so much of... <laughs> history since 1950 and it's the period that I'd lived through mainly but um, I found that my own even though I was uh, took relatively big interest in world affairs and the rest of it how ignorant I was about even about some things that I thought I knew reasonably well and that as soon as you start to delve into it you realize how superficial your knowledge is and so I think that more than anything that I discovered or researched in detail was what surprised me that how little of this I was really understanding even of things which I'd lived through and which um, I took an interest in at the time. Yes well actually you, you do write in the book that you you know have to be sort of extra careful about the stuff you remember. Yes no that's absolutely true um, and of course memory is very fallible but so is experience and my experience was largely limited to um, to this country apart from uh, spells where I was in Germany and um, that experience is obviously an individual one and I, I think that you can't write a book like this that's, that really places too much emphasis upon individual experience but um, in terms of, of uh, the the other things that, that really um, interested me greatly were, were the developments beyond the Iron Curtain in areas which I only had tangentially touched upon and how I don't just mean the dramatic things like the Hungarian uprising and so on, or Prague Spring, but the but the the way in which these countries are developed and and how individual the developments were of these countries. You tend to, we've tended always to talk about Soviet bloc, and yet um, the difference between the Soviet Union itself and then the satellite countries, and the difference between each of the satellite countries from the other from the others, was also something that struck me very, very, very much indeed as I was working through this, and how little I knew really about those developments. Sort of following on from the fall of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of the Soviet bloc, there was this assumption that liberal democracy was, you know, part of a, you know, a, a sort of pa- package that went with yeah. capitalism. Um, it didn't seem to turn out like that. Why do you think it didn't? It, it is. It is a big question. I mean, first, first of all, I mean, you, one of the things in the book that I I learnt a lot about when I was writing the chapter was how miserable the early existence was after the euphoria. We in the West were euphoric in certain ways, but how miserable the experience was by in the initial years of most of these uh, Eastern or Central European countries. I mean, things were starting to improve drastically by the end of the 1990s, but the early years were very hard for much of the population there. And, and um, uh, in, not just in East Germany, but in other parts of, uh, in fact, at least of all in East Germany, because they had the benefits of West Germany. But um, uh, where did it start to go? I, in retrospect, I think the the rapid moves 
towards European integration and towards, um, in particular, a single currency after 1990 were premature and they were ill thought out and they were they were um, they were done too rapidly, I think. And uh, at the at Maastricht, not only were the moves to European Union, which with, with its political input, which had a, a very big impact, negative impact in this country, as we well know. Um, but I think the, the shift to um, a currency union, although it's been in the offing in various man, uh, manifestations for, current, for some while, um, that, that move to a currency union without, not just without a, um, the proper political framework for it, but without... Um, in a way, the proper economic framework for it, I think, was very risky venture, which has then backfired in many ways. And um, Helmut Kohl warned about this. He warned about that in the Bundestag in a speech in, I think, 1991. Um, and the Germans spoke a lot about political union, but for them, I think it was just a vague term that meant somehow we're moving into the utopian distant future. I think political union was, nobody's ever defined it in Germany, and I think for very good reasons, because um, it, the German constitution itself, the, the basic law, the German constitution, would actually prevent political union in the sense that it's normally interpreted here, in the sense that the German state cannot give away its sovereignty by its own constitution. It, it, can, it can actually delegate or give away parts of its sovereignty. It can't give away sovereignty itself. And um, so there could never be unless they actually just got rid of the basic law, the, the constitution of, of Germany, there could never be um, a, a, a federal Europe in the way that people speak about it so often in this country. Oh, so this is a bogeyman. Yeah. Um, and, and, but nonetheless, the term was, was in use in the early 1990s, and this is what we're striving for, etc. That had all sorts of negative impacts in this country, not least. Um, but um, I think also in... In, um, in the way, it was obviously a compromise. Uh, Mitterrand, the, the French wanted currency union, but they wanted basically, from their point of view, it was a miscalculation. They thought they would be running the show. Was in fact, when it came about, it was run on German lines. It was basically directed along the lines of the Bundesbank. And um, that had its own flaws, I think, built into it in the sense that the, the, cent the European Central Bank was not... Um, a central bank like the Fed in the USA or like the Bank of England here, so that a currency union in that sense was awkward because you had on the one hand the single currency, but on the other hand a lot of national banks operating in national ways. I'm no economist, so I can't actually um, understand completely the, the complexities of all this, but I think that was a double problem for the euro then, that there was no single state operating it, and nor was the currency itself actually... Um, backed by a central bank in the conventional way of a central bank. And I think some of those problems came home to roost in the finance crisis of 2008 and after where the, the, uh, the European Central Bank was very slow to react in, the, in contrast, for example, to the Fed and where it was prevented from doing certain things right at the beginning. Actually, bailouts were prevented. They eventually did. They brought about these bailouts, but very slow and sluggish. And so recovery was there very slow, very slow there, unlike, um, unlike America. And I think that's, you know, now recovery is taking place. It's doing very reasonably well at the present time. But some economic experts think that, there's still a crisis um, waiting to happen there, and if if, if this current uh, sunny weather turns um, 
stormy, then the storms may well backfire again on the on the currency union, on the single currency. Adam Tews thinks it's still it's still underway. I think. Yeah. Um, so um, I I think for me that was the period where things appeared to go right, but started to go wrong in in Europe. Of course, I mean all that's been overtaken by the finance crash itself, and then especially by the migration crisis afford uh, hot on the heels of it. Yeah. And do you, and obviously, you know, you've just written a history of Europe. Um, you were very properly reluctant to prognosticate, but, um, I mean, do you see Brexit as something that's going to threaten the integrity of Europe itself? How do you, you know, how do you react to that latest development? Well, um, you know, I, I was a fervent uh, remainer and, and I'm still that, actually. I was, I was bitterly upset at uh, Brexit and I think we've taken a wrong turn, so there are no secrets and I've said it many times. I mean, I just think we, we're making a mistake with it, but anyway, we're, we're seemingly going through with it. Um, I don't think there's a state, correct me if this is wrong, I don't think there's a state west of the Ukraine and the Balkans which is not in certain ways fairly closely tied to the European Union, um, whether through membership of the single market or customs union or both, maybe not both. Um, so my guess is that uh, ultimately we'll end up reasonably closely connected with the uh, European Union, even if we formally leave it. I think it's going to be harmful for Britain. I know views differ on that quite drastically. My own view and everything I've read leads me to suggest that it will cause harm to this country. Uh, it will cause um, some harm to the European Union too. We're a big member of it and we were a very valued member of it. And I think we played for all our awkwardness, played a very important part in the European Union. So I think it will be lessened by our exit. It, it will, however... I think, be less damaged by that than we are damaged by that. So I think the European Union has, it's now got strong roots that have developed over a very long time. I, I think it'd be quite hard to undermine those, or uproot those strong foundations that easily. I think, as I said, the major worry I would have is actually with the Eurozone, which is the core of the European Union, but not the European Union itself. And that might that looks more flaky to me than the European Union itself does, and uh, it, I think it could withstand a lot, and maybe even the breakup at some point in the future. I don't know whether it will happen. Very, views differ on that too. Whether there'll be um, some reshaping of the eurozone in due course. Uh, lots of things will can happen and will happen which we can't possibly see at this stage. And but I think the European Union will survive, and its structures are sound enough to withstand an awful lot. There is an argument that some make that actually, without us, you know, dragging our heels and demanding exceptions and you know pulling against further political integration, the kind of core countries in Europe may be able to you know do, do more of what they want. Yeah, well, that, that's that's one one argument, and, and there's a lot to be said for that. The only thing is, what's the core? Europe now, because um, of the original six, uh, Italy is looking distinctly unhealthy. It has not for a long time, but at the minute, I mean, is is looking um, not exactly as solid as, as, say, Austria, which wasn't in the original grouping, is looking. And um, then Brexit's a problem for Europe, but then it has other bigger problems, I think, to worry about. Uh, Brexit, I think, is more important 
in our perspective than it is from the perspective of, of Brussels or Paris or Berlin. And I think when they look at the, the problems of, of populism throughout Europe, when they look at the, the difficulties in Central Europe with Hungary and Poland, when they look at Putin on the borders and Erdogan on the southeastern borders, then, and, and as I said, Italy, you know, a core, original core member, which is, which is causing great worry at the present time, then they have very good grounds for seeing this as a really uh, almost existential crisis for, for Europe. And they, Europe needs renewal, unquestionably, needs renewal. And the problem is, where's that coming from? Because Macron wants that now, but Merkel uh, is dragging her heels, I think, and the Germans, for all sorts of domestic reasons, can't go down the same path, at least not as fast as, as Macron wants them to do. And so without those two countries, then uh, really substantial change is difficult to see. And it needs Germany to, I think, make a move to support Macron to bring about the beginnings of that renewal. But in any case, even though a structural renewal, they have a lot more to do. There has to be some democratisation of, of Europe, of the Commission as well as the Parliament. And there, also be to some, there has also to be, I think, some attempt at renewal at the grassroots. If things have to go to grassroots, otherwise you're going to still to have this tendency of people to say, well, Europe is something out there. It's an abstraction. It's a number of constructs at, at the political level. They don't touch upon us. And any sort of identity with, with Europe as opposed to with the nation state is, is going to be minimal. And do you think that sows the sort of populist backlash we're seeing? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that, although that backlash is now very very strong indeed in the light of the, the double economic and, and then migrant crisis, especially the migrant crisis. Um, it, doesn't, it didn't start there. I mean, you look back and it, you can see it already in embryonic fashion there in the 1990s and so on. So what we've got is a long-term thing and there's no, no quick fix solution to it. It's going to be there for a very long time, I think. Well, finally, a more general question about history itself. Do you, do you believe that when you're you know, writing history, if somebody thinks of it as, as a way we... we you know, so Santayana, that, you know, a people ignorant of its history is doomed to repeat it. I mean, do you, th- do you think writing history is a way of, if you like, learning from our mistakes? We can learn from, from history, uh, and we have done so in the past. Uh, in a sense, I mean, the European Union is one attempt to learn from history, from the mistakes that were made in the, in the period between the wars, and to overcome those problems. And... Um, when you look at, let's say, the Bretton Woods Conference of 1944, it was a deliberate attempt to learn the economic lessons and to rebuild Europe with, the, with a new economic framework, or build, rebuild the global economy, actually. And it succeeded in that for, um, you know, best part of 25 years or more. Um, so we can learn from history, and, uh, but I think the purpose of history is not to draw lessons, basically, that we then used to develop policy it's it's to inform us how we've got to where we've got to and then we can from that see sometimes if we're lucky see what mistakes were made along the way and we can hope to refashion things but not in a directly usually in a directly instrumental sense but in in a way that we we realize that things are not going down the right path and we need to reform and amend them and so it's not Certainly not a job of historians to try and predict or try and shape those policy decisions, but just to help to, if you're lucky anyway, to illustrate or elucidate the the um, difficulties we faced in getting to where we are. And I think it, then it's very difficult to draw very very functional conclusions from that. But sometimes history can show you 
paths that have gone wrong and where you can make adjustments and hope with, with luck anyway create a better future here's hoping Ian Kershaw, thank you very much indeed. Great pleasure. You were listening to the Spectator's Books podcast. Um, Very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.